Welcome to the Boston Art Podcast. Boston's premier art podcast. Where we talk art, culture, and philosophy. My name is Theodore Earthworms. And I am Brian Huntress. Welcome to the show. Hello, my friends, and welcome to a special episode of the Boston Art Podcast. We're going to start this episode off just as usual with some great discussion and ideas between me and Theo. We're going to talk a lot about AI. What does it mean? Where is it going? Are we going to die? I don't know, and neither do we. But uh, the first part of our episode is going to go uh, until our mics die, and then we're going to uh, just stop talking about that. And after that, it's going to transition into an experimental, new, and weird format where Theo will not be on the second half of the episode. It'll just be me. Brian, uh, watching a YouTube video of an artist named Vincent Desiderio give a lecture and me giving my uh, thoughts and analysis on that lecture. Hopefully that won't be terrible. That uh, uh, change will happen around the 20 minute mark. So look out for that. Anyway, thank you guys for tuning in. Longtime listeners will know that we're a bunch of fucking crazy people that uh, have jobs and are also artists and are working our asses off to have this podcast and to make sure we get an episode out every Friday. So for the people that do listen every week, I see you. I see those little numbers pop up every time you guys listen. And I am so appreciative and grateful uh, to you guys, you know, for, for supporting us and for engaging in the content we make. We make it with love. We make it for you guys. So this is filler is what I'm trying to tell you. We we're, we're crazy and we're working ridiculously hard and our faces are melting and our pockets are burning and nobody's helping us. <laughs> so we're, we're doing the best we can. And we did not get to make an episode this week. So I am hodgepodging together an episode. Thank you guys for listening. Love y'all. See you next week. Are you going to explain Why it did I say never air? mind to what? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, do, what could be the... What is the problem? Say it again. Repeat it, please, with context. Ah, um, yes, your question. My exposition is... Um, no, I was... We were about to record, and you were like, should we record right now? And I was like, it's kind of a weird time. Like, we're in the middle of doing something, but, like, we're in the car for a bit. We could get a 30-minute scratch track. And then I said, is that an incorrect use of the term scratch track. I don't know what that means. And you were like... <laughs> well, I feel like it's not something that has, like, a legitimate definition. But in my experience, a scratch track is when you are recording a song and then you shittily record... Like, you just do a version of the song live yeah. to a click track. What's and a click track? It's a metronome. Okay. Right. And you do it to a metronome or a drum beat or something... Yeah, and then it's just you, like a scribble of the song, basically. It's a it's a scribble of the song with the perfect tempo, okay, so that you could multi-track all of your other whatevers on top of that. Because if you like, if you record the first instrument or track of a multi-track experience with a meandering or slightly off tempo. Mm. You're, it's like doing the beginning of a math problem wrong. Oh. It'll just totally fuck up your whole life. That makes sense. And, and you'll be like me, where you'll be like, 
well, the scratch track is wrong and I'm trying to retroactively record drums onto a song without drums. So now I need to learn the exact sequence of the song as it is played wrong so I can record these drums to an offbeat song. So that now I'm learning the wrong, like, does that make sense? Kind of, yeah. Like, it's like I sped up at this part, so I need to remember when I'm recording this track that I need to speed up a little bit at this particular part and that I kind of, you know what I mean? So it's inadvisable, basically. It's inadvisable, but if you're recording live with multiple people, then you don't need a metronome. You could just say, fuck it, and throw caution to the wind. Bees, ants, spiders, mice, and more. That's what they say. That's what they say. It sounds like he's selling them. It's an exterminator, actually. <sighs> just really fucked up. So I got fuzzy dice now in my car. You're welcome. Thanks, Theo. They're red. Red fuzzy dice with white dots. Yeah. They look They look pretty, like... I don't know what to think of them. Like, they look trashy and, and dumb, like I'm a dumb person. <laughs> But they also have, like, a sexy, fun vibe. Yeah. So, I, But I can't really decide which I am. Am I, am I a trashy, dumb weirdo? Or am I cool and sexy? You can be both. It probably just depends on you who, whatever is, you want to who be. is asking. Yeah. <laughs> or, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, that's not the right thing. It depends who you ask. Depends who's asking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if I'm asking? Uh, maybe trashy and sexy, but not dumb and stupid. Yeah. What were the options? Trashy and dumb, <laughs> or <laughs> I don't know. No, I like them. I thought that they would be fun in your car. They are fun. Yeah, our our mobile studio. Yeah. You know what's kind of a funny idea? Is something I like to wonder a lot is when you study art history or music history or pop culture history, there's always, like, a staple of the times that people, like, like, oh, dude, back in, like, 1970s London, it was all about blah, blah, blah. Or, like, oh, back in, like, L.A. in the 90s, we were all doing this and that, hanging yeah. out at this stupid-ass club at the Viper Room mm. or the Comedy Store. Like, I sometimes wonder about right now where I'm, like, not, like, like, I mean, like, what, like, will people think of, like, artists or whatever? Like, oh, yeah, like, there was, like, so many, like, idiots with podcasts in the 2020s. <laughs> and it was so cool to record in cars back then. That's such an interesting thing to think about. In I don't terms know. Of, like, <laughs> like, physical locations. I feel like in the past, people always talk about, like, oh, I used to hang out at the Rat or, like, the Viper Room or whatever. Like, it was a club or yeah. a place. Maybe because we're talking about music for the most part, we're saying that. But even when you think about visual artists, it's like, well, we used to hang out in factory buildings or we'd have, like, warehouse raves or whatever. But, like, nobody can afford to even, like, have a place to sleep right now. So that's not a thing. Right. And, and it, the thing that makes me frustrated about that preemptively, which I feel a little bit corny and stupid for even going on this ramp, but I'm going to do it anyway. Okay is the places that people are going to talk about are probably like gentrified ass fake spots that nobody actually hangs out at right now. I mean, you can't even think of one. Oh, like you think they'll get it wrong. Like I loved like hanging out at Lulu's in Austin. Oh, Soa. <laughs> Soa back in the day was the, where all, I don't fucking know. Nobody's See, partying at Soa. That's well, you know, what's kind of funny about that though, is that I feel like Soa, 
is actually home to countless cutting edge artists yeah and great people but it's also like shut the fuck up you rich fucking losers that isn't <laughs> the only place on earth yeah it's got a bit of duality it's like congratulations you have a studio with a ton of great artists in a great place and that's awesome for you yeah but also like you know it's just not the center of the universe I think where a lot of artists that I know are right now is working a completely unrelated job where a lot of people in that field happen to work, but it depends on the medium. Like if you are a, um, if you're a tattoo artist that's not working at a shop, like if you are like a freelance tattoo artist or a stick and poke artist, you're a barista. That's a good, that's actually an interesting point. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, we just finished Mad Men a staple of the fifties and sixties was artists working in advertising agencies. Yeah. That's not really as much of a thing right now because of not it's so here's an interesting point is that that's not a thing anymore simply because we don't, we, we have kind of changed the meaning of the word artist. We don't draw ads. Well, here's the thing. There are tons of people that work in media or advertising or marketing Mm that are artists, but they just are Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator, video editing. Yeah, different media. Making sick ass edits and shit. Yeah. Like so those people are still uh still out there, but the way we think of artists right now is like somebody working in some random antiquated medium <laughs> like oil painting or sculpting or something. Yeah. Kind of reminds me of something I said to you earlier, which is the fact that I think it's funny that Photoshop is being uh, overrun and destroyed by AI uh, because (laughs) all the douche canoe Photoshop artists get to be just like us regular artists. In our antiquated mediums. Yeah, because our medium has been antiquated for 200 years. So welcome (laughs) to the party. Oh man. Welcome to the club. (laughs) We're, I, (laughs) I started doing this knowing that I had like, did not have any monetizable prospects this smells like art school beef (laughs) nah i mean sure when i was young and pukey and stupid many might describe me as that right now pukey and stupid pukey and stupid yeah i thought we went over that though you're trashy and sexy oh okay yeah i'll take it uh (laughs) but no i think maybe when i was like 19 i thought that like (laughs) digital media wasn't valid art yeah but obviously i don't think that at all anymore that's like uh, absolutely yeah get that bag well i don't want to say that's a stupid thing to to think because there could be somebody listening that thinks that and And i would rather not call them stupid but i would rather just try to convince them that the digital media and digital art is 100 percent valid how how do we do that right now i don't know i don't know oh you're putting on chapstick i thought you were no i was reflecting you're just Um, doing a little reflection yeah i don't know i think that if you are out here, like, still debating the legitimacy of art mediums, you need a hobby. Okay, well, Theo, <laughs> it, there's, you cannot win somebody over in an argument by telling them that the argument's stupid. I'm not here for fans. <laughs> if there's an, an issue, you can't just say, guys, this is stupid. You have to, you have to use some, some finesse. This is my podcast. Turn my, me off if you it's want. It's my podcast. <laughs> Brian's sympathetic to you. I am. I I'm say fuck off. Yeah, I mean, I say fuck off a little bit, but... We take turns. Here's the thing. Okay, do you like Toulouse-Lautrec? He's good. Famed He's okay. poster, creator, French icon, 
uh, uh, sex machine. <laughs> uh, 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 you know what's whatever. so funny is I feel like every like classic artist, like one of the any of the ones that have like this huge fine arts narrative, everyone always like highlights that they were either like a hopeless romantic or like a fuck machine. Or they fucked hard. Yeah, like there's none that were just like <laughs> they, he just painted. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there were there are many. Maybe you know what Ansel Adams. Was Ansel Adams like a family man? I don't know. Oh, but the fact that I don't know. Don't, he's kind of sexless. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> he's sexless. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I just am not up on the lore of Ansel Adams. I but he's a big name photographer who was I, like really important. Yeah. But I don't know a lot about his love life. And I feel like that's a little weird. Google right now. Google Ansel Did Adams. Did Ansel Adams fuck? Ansel Adams scandal. Just start, type that scandal? in. Scandal? Yeah. Type in like, or like, yeah. Type, just do that. Let's see. Because you, like, found I, the I think that people, I think that people associate the sex lives and romantic adventures of artists like post mortem because it's just a romantic thing to think. Like you know, I don't know. Like we talk, we do that with celebrities right now, like so, wondering who Taylor Swift is gonna date or whatever, or is currently dating. Yeah, that's like just like a fun. It's just fun. I think that's really all it is. So I found a scandal. Oh, um, Ansel Adams. Let's hear it. Give us the tea on Ansel Adams. For those in the audience who have no idea who the fuck this guy is, he's the black and white nature photographer guy. Yeah. He photographed, like, fucking... Yellowstone. Yeah, Yellowstone and shit. He was also really... I don't... I'm going to be the worst person to describe this, but just off the top of my head... A resident Ansel Adams documentarian who (laughs) only speaks in facts, knows everything, got a master's degree in Ansel Adams... Theodore Earthworms. <laughs> Tell um, us all about him. He is he was Actually. a really big deal for um the securing of national parks on the West Coast because he photographed a lot of them and helped like get environmental protections for those areas. Great stuff. Yeah. Congratulations. So he was a bit of a natural activist. Um but I guess the only scandal that comes up when you Google it is um court battle over lost Ansel Adams negative turns ugly. FBI oh, so arrest gallery owner for forging Ansel Adams photos. <laughs> Fake negatives. Hey, you know what you should Google What's right now? What's the Ansel Adams sex scandal? Yeah, try that. Ansel Adams sex. Ansel Adams sex tape. Uh, <laughs> Nothing. Ansel Adams interview with Playboy? Nah, and Playboy was is real. It wasn't. It was, Playboy was just a blog before blogs existed. <laughs> no, Nothing. All right, now Ansel look up Adams. Ansel Adams' wife and children. See a whole wife scene. and children? <laughs> yeah, I, just no, no, no. Actually, thing. no, just wife. Ansel Adams I already wife. Googled it. Hold on. Oh, okay. uh, I got a bunch of photos. Virginia Best Adams, the woman behind the legend. Oh, wow. Was she an artist? Let's see. Um, Ansel, look up Ansel Adams' body count. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> So, blah 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 blah. I'm trying to read the article. Sorry. Why are you even reading it? Just I just want to know what she's about. Why don't you just skim it and then give us bad two-dimensional information about what you read? Uh, they dated for six years, um, and in 1928, they Ansel proposed. Virginia accepted. Oh my god! The two had gone back and forth on their engagement. They both really cared about nature. 
I'm so bored, I'm ready to jump out of the car. Oh, Virginia did not have the time to buy a wedding dress, so she wore her best dress, which happened to be black. With perhaps a trace of scorn for tradition, along with a coat and tie, I wore knickers and my trusty basketball shoes. Okay, hold on. Can we pause? What? I think you could close that tab and we could just... I think they were regular people. We could close the case. Ansel Adams was was a sexless family man. (laughs) No offense. Um, But to go back to my original point, Toulouse-Lautrec... Yeah. Andy Warhol. I don't know. Think of any other popular illustrator who made dope designs in their time. And I, well, here's how Andy Warhol and Toulouse-Lautrec were related. They were both influential distributors of popular imagery, not through museums and galleries, but Toulouse-Lautrec was a poster maker. Yeah. He made posters that were mass produced and then put around his city to promote burlesque shows and clubs and shit. Yeah. Andy Warhol, at the beginning of his career, was a type of poster maker as well. He made advertisements. He made this and that. He probably did a shitload of album art, magazine covers. And even when he was only in the fine art world and completely exited from commercial art, he was still doing poster-style art. Think of, take Shepard Fairey, another very widely, ridiculously well-respected artist, Mm. makes fucking posters. You think Shepard Fairey is sitting there with markers and pens and shit? That's all Photoshop. Yeah. I guarantee it. Maybe in his OG days when he was at fucking Kinko's cutting out posters to wheat paste, that probably wasn't Photoshop. But now he's a Photoshop artist. And if Toulouse-Lautrec were alive right now or if Andy Warhol were alive right now, I guarantee you they would be in the digital digital world. So do you take back your fighting words about AI? Oh, no. I was I was talking shit about people who are mad about ai yeah i am i am a soldier of the ai revolution i am like (laughs) i'm 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 like a gorilla skynet soldier i'm gonna join the robots when they kill everybody just kidding uh yeah um but no i i think that it's a really i think it's an important conversation to have about how are we going to prevent ai from impoverishing people Mm. because i don't think i think that AI is fucking up the art world. It's a wedge issue. I don't think that's the most important issue at all. But I think what's going to be an issue is when there's like a like a, a tech company making billions of dollars a year that has one employee, the CEO. Yeah. And the rest of it is just ran by an AI robot. Or when we, I don't know. Like, I think the real problem is is putting millions and millions of normal people out of their jobs with no backup plan for how the working class is going to recover from that. Because like, I don't know, man, like computers, technology, like farming equipment, like, like shit changes and it puts people out of work. That's like the way of the world. That's the whole story of the industrial revolution. So that's happening right now, but there's no, there's no plan. That's just fuck poor people. Who knows what they'll do next. Right here is about where our mics died, sadly, so we did not get to finish this discussion on recording, but now we're going to transition into the second part of our show, where we talk about the artist Vincent Desiderio and a lecture he did some years ago. Anyway, hope you enjoy. Bye-bye. My friends, one of the best ways you can ever learn to paint, in my opinion, is probably art school. It's probably art school. It's probably studying directly under a master painter, somebody with a, you know, 
a master's degrees, an MFA in the fine arts, or in painting, or in sculpting, or whatever stupid fucking thing you're interested in, the best way to do it is to study under somebody. The second best way to do it, in my humble opinion, is to watch recorded college lectures from art schools that you will never be able to afford to go to. Here's a really interesting one by a man named Vincent Desiderio, a New York City artist, I believe, who, um, <clears throat> without overblowing it, he's just a fucking good painter. Let's see what he's got to say well, in this I'm demo. To, like, make a painting in four hours. So this is him doing a speech at El El Cad, wherever the fuck that is, Laguna. First of all, I think it would be antithetical to what I've been talking about regarding light and uh, its history and the history of form. And I want to talk a lot about this guy because I've learned a lot from him, and I think uh, I didn't graduate from an art college. I didn't graduate from any college. I don't even actually have a degree, but I just study like a motherfucker on YouTube, you know, watching shit like this. And this is one in particular that I watched many years ago that greatly influenced a massive series of art that I made that, uh, yeah, I sold a lot of them. I, I, I got a lot of them out there. I showed a lot of them in shows, and it was all around beneficial. So I just, the return on investment of just watching this three-hour video in my room while painting changed a lot for me for uh, multiple years after watching it. So there's that. So I, I actually would like to um, walk through a, a, a way of ways of beginning um, a picture. I think I, I, a lot of people I noticed, not, not that I didn't have the same problem. I did have this problem. It took me a while to get a handle on it. But uh, the transition between drawing and painting uh, is a big problem. Uh, you, know, you see people that draw very well, but then when they go to paint, they freak out. And I just want to say, too, the difference between drawing and painting, that may be something that's on your mind right now, especially if you're in art school. You definitely have a painting professor that says, that's not a painting, that's a drawing. Stop drawing. Stop drawing with the brush. Paint, 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 paint. And it probably is annoying as fuck, but I'm here to tell you, my friends, uh, there's no answer. The peop It's a completely subjective and dumb thing. I don't know why people always say that. I don't fucking get it. Uh, it seems like they're trying to get you to be more gestural and make more broad strokes, which can make your painting look good. But I think what they're trying to tell you most of all is to stop holding your brush like a little tiny pencil, making little microscopic lines and start holding it like a brush. You know, they say you hold pencils like this, you hold brushes like this. Anyway, I don't know. Stupid ass and shit. Color starts going all over the place. And, you know, <laughs> the best part of all of this is that it just doesn't matter, and you get to just do whatever the fuck you want and just make stuff. In ways you don't want it to mix, and how, how when do you when do you let it dry? How long do you gotta let wipe it dry? my nose? Uh, when do you, what do you do when you start back into a picture after it's dry? Um, you know, um, the transition from uh, from from drawing or your underpainting to Everything you do on top of it. When you talk about an underpainting, first of all, an underpainting is frankly nothing more than what you do first on the canvas. And I agree with him here that it is nothing more than what you do on the canvas first, but your underpainting does set up the future of your painting in some very real ways. You can compare it to your spawn point into the image of which you have 
chosen to paint, or you could imagine it like your artwork's zip code in which it is born into. Sure, uh, it's just a spawn point, it's just a zip code, but not all spawn points are created equally in this game of life. This is the same. This is exactly the same for your underpainting. If you do a horrible job, or you use fucked up materials, or you do not think critically about what you are painting, you will base the rest of your painting off of a horrible, dumb, and unintelligent underpainting. But if you are thinking critically about it, if you are thinking intelligently about where you are putting things, maybe you've used a grid, maybe you have a plan, maybe you don't at all, maybe you're just action painting like Jackson Pollock, whatever it is, if you think critically about it, you will be able to more accurately create the painting in which you are trying to make. But if you think stupidly and brashly, you will make a bad painting. You know? So if you, if you have like an idea that there is some magical old master way of doing it, there, there were many different ways of doing starting the picture uh, underneath. Probably the worst way to start a picture underneath is to do a black and white underpainting. Um, a lot of people think of that Ang... Um, uh, Odalisk, that's in the Metropolitan Museum, that's done with just black and white. And people, I, I know I've had many friends and students say that's got to be how he started his pictures, with a gray underpainting, you know, just simply black and white. And that, that, that painting was not done as an underpainting at all. That probably was done for engraving or just as an exercise or just to show his students the thing that he always asked them to do, which is uh, he would tell them to, to take white and black and make, uh, you know, 100 or 50 values between white and black. If you can't do that right now, you're in big trouble. If you sit there and you make a grid, not a grid, a fucking, <clears throat> a drawn gradient of 10 points, one the number one value being a, a white cube, and then 10 spaces to your right, it being a black cube, and then you draw a perfectly accurate grayscale in between those. Learning how to do that will radically increase your drawing motherfucker's skill, boy. And they would come back and they said, we can't, we can't do it. And then he would pull out something that, that, had 500, that he did that had 500 values. And this is something that kind of pisses me off about conversations like this, because Vincent, Mr. Vincent Desiderio here is as close to a master painter as you're going to find in the modern day. These guys that are like heavily, unbelievably, ridiculously studied on old master works, on this insane, cavernous art history education with ridiculously, you know, with ridiculous, ridiculous, out of this world application of the knowledge that, that, that he has, you know, you just don't find guys like this anymore. Nice spelling, you fucking dumbass. Um, I mean, look at this guy's shit. These are massive, massive oil paintings. Like, these things, I mean, they're probably not 25 feet tall, but they're probably, like, 6 by fucking 8 feet or some shit. Well, there you go. Those are probably 36 by 48, 30 by 40s. This dude is a fucking monster of realism, of oil painting, of of technique. So you can't shit on this guy. You can't tell him he's wrong. You can't tell him he's elitist or whatever the fuck. This dude is just, he's just a motherfucker. He's just fucking good at painting. And 
the problem with that is that he's so good at painting that if you watch some other interviews with him, one criticism I would have of him, but I mean, the guy's so goddamn good and in his own world that what the fuck would my criticism ever matter of this man? The only thing, you know, is that he seems very insensitive to contemporary, like he, insensitive, such a dumb word. He seems like he just doesn't give a shit about contemporary art. Which I think is a bit of a mistake. He's only into painting. He's this man is 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 purely into painting. It seems, and people who paint in a similar tradition to what he is doing. I don't fucking. I'm losing my train of thought. This is dumb. Between white and black. But I guess this this focus on this focus on a hyper academic background and how that seems to be one of the main points at which you decide whether or not something is good or whether or not something is valid is completely dumb. Not only is it elitist in an educational or academic sense, but it also is kind of in support of, of, of structural uh, oppression and, and, and racism and, and, in a sense. And because not because fuck and now I'm sounding stupid. I'm wading into waters that I don't know fucking anything about accurately, but to promote Hyper academic super education as being the only source of good art is fucking dumb, and it it it, it ignores people, places, communities, and lifestyles and worldviews that don't account for Western hyper education. That's all I'm saying. Whether or not that is racist or classist, sure, debate it all you want. But just saying that you're not valid or your art is fucking baloney. Unless, you know, you attended New York Academy or some fucking Italian art school. It's like, fucking shut the fuck up, you dumb fucking bitch. That's what I say. Um, Not that Vincent is the dumb bitch in this hypothetical. I'm just saying there's more than one way to skin a cat. That, you know, that you should paint a portrait like a fly crawling across a piece of paper. You know, that's how you're paying attention to value shift you know so subtle and, and that's how he got these amazing uh subtleties in his in his work uh, of tonality uh, but black and white is not the way to start the uh underpainting the underpainting is uh, i find that the best way to do it is to do what you might call a chromatic grisaille which is uh, a grisaille or an underpainting that takes into account from the very beginning uh, a shift in the temperature from the temperature of the light to the temperature of the shadow first of all and when you were talking about the temperature of a light or the temperature of a shadow, you can refer back to your grade school color theory lesson in cold colors are blue, warm colors are fucking red or yellow. And what he's talking about is accurately creating the value in a painting and the transition, the subtlety and the transition of values by not just using dark and light like the grisaille, i.e. the black and white painting that he was just talking shit about a minute ago, but instead doing the same thing chromatically where you are not just using dark and light, but you are also on a bit of a y-axis of warm and cold, i.e. the temperature of the value, not just the value so sometimes you might look at the value of, in a face. I'm, I'm looking at my mic, look at the camera. Sometimes you may look at the value of a face and the shadow cast by your nose and your left cheek 
may have a bit of a, 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 a warm tint to it or a cold tint to it. These are the things you must pay attention to. When you're looking at Vincent's face here, look under his eye, this bag under his eye at the top of his cheekbone right here. That's like a dark, that's like a, that's like a burnt sienna red shadow under here in his eye, the pocket of his eye here. There are some warm tones, but this is a largely subdued temperature. This is not a red hot tone. These are cold. This is cold. His fucking shirt is obviously a cold tone. Anyway, what the fuck do I know? Indicates to some degree um, local color and sometimes you know, like that. But holding off on the full uh, expression of the color, holding off on the full intensity of the color, holding off on the full intensity of the darks, okay? You can go as powerful with, as, with the lights as, as you want to go in the underpainting. This is, when he's talking about holding off on the intensity of the lights, uh, of the colors, this is where the active part of the sentence grisai would come into picture. If you don't know what grisai means, I believe it's an Italian word that refers to all gray, like gray painting. You're probably better off doing that. Um, another thing that people tend to do is they... Um, they see a warm light on, on the model, for example, uh, and they start mixing up the yellow right away <laughs> to get that yellow light on there. And uh, in the beginning, we don't want to do that, you know? Uh, this poor guy is itching his neck and just fucking grabbed his lapel mic. Can you imagine being the, the tech guy in the situation? I imagine Vermeer going in there and start slamming in the blues or slamming in the, in the very beginning of the painting. You're going to gradually build to the full, full expression of the color, Okay. And it, while you're doing that, you're building into the, the picture illumination. Now, you know uh, how it feels when you take a white canvas and you put color directly on it, how that color sings. And then you work on a more toned ground, you put the color on it, it has a different effect, you know? And then as the painting gets darker, you put that same color on it and it starts to not even look like the color. So it kind of deadens, right? So the object in, in painting is always to keep as much light, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, and I think in in methods that have existed for centuries is to keep as much light in the picture as long as possible before you start enhancing the darks and the color. Um, it's so much more effective uh, uh, if you do that. Color sings with a greater, you know, uh, with a greater voice when, when, you, when you do that. Um, I mean, I think that's honestly a really interesting point that he's making because... One thing a lot of young artists and a lot of impatient artists, even like myself, really, really want to do is to just put black on the canvas, to put some dark Van Dyke brown just all over the fucking place. And when you see some darkness and, you know, if we were drawing Vincent here, you know, I'm drawing his eyebrow and his eye, you might be instinctually inclined to just make this eyelash, eyelid situation, just a black line, put a little purple whatever you know i think what he's saying is to maintain the sanctity of the canvas for as long as possible and the light the natural light on your picture to not jump the gun jump the shark and just fill in all of the darkness but to build up colors gradually and maintain maintain the the the, the light and maybe the the, uh, and maybe he's not saying that at all, and I'm just an idiot. Works of uh, of the um, the um, hi, um, you know the Dutch the um, I'm sorry the uh, Flemish masters, you know the white of the ground. 
Sorry, I thought I heard something. And uh, they tried to preserve the whiteness of the ground throughout the picture. They, that's not to say they didn't layer over that ground with a glaze and then pull, pull other whites on top of that. But uh, uh, well, I, maybe, in the end, their darks <laughs> tended to be thicker than their lights. Uh, if when they analyze the paints, the darks have a kind of thickness to them that the lights don't have because they're trying to preserve that ground coming through, but they don't mind putting the darks in. You know? Then in painting, in more modern painting under like Titian, it, the, the lights are more, more pronounced than the darks. The darks are thinner than the lights. And uh, in people like Titian, um, you get the idea that instead of just trying to preserve this whiteness and letting that be the, the basis for the light mass, they're actually putting the white, the light where they want it to be. So what he's, what he's saying here basically is back to my metaphor of there's more than one way to skin a cat. The Flemish masters were want to build up the black and the darkness on the canvas in between layers of glaze. You may be asking now, what is a layer of glaze? What we are talking about is a layer of oil paint, whatever. You know, these, these people would build up this painting as far as it will go stop painting allow the oil paint on the surface to completely dry and then put a glaze on it this would normally be probably not a varnish i don't know what on earth these people would be using back then but they would seal it essentially with a glaze allow that to dry and then continue to build up more colors you can think of this as microscopic sheets of glass of different tone and shape being placed upon one another over and over again ad infinitum where you know, it's like making a mountain out of layers of paint. You're doing this with infinite transparent layers of, of tone and light <clears throat> over and over again on the canvas to build up this absolutely holy looking uh, 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 transparent layers of light. And with oil paint, too, and its transparency and the way it absorbs light, the oil the light will literally travel through the transparent layers of glaze into the ground. You know, he's talking about these Flemish masters maintaining the purity of the canvas through the paint for as long as possible, which would explain why their light tones, assuming they're painting on a white canvas, are very, very thin. But their black tones, which they put on for, you know, with which much more liberality, uh, in the end became much more thicker you know in terms of this other art he's talking about i forget what it is maybe they were painting from a dark tone or their underpainting appeared very dark and their blacks and browns and 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 low value colors <clears throat> excuse me tended to be much thicker or their white paints they're they're white which would be uh high tones that are are, are coming more to the surface were thicker, almost sculptural, impasto, high-key colors. You know, so they might have used it to start with a toned ground uh, of some sort and then worked, probably worked with, with tempera in the beginning, even Titian in his early paintings. Titian. But if you look at Titian's late paintings, um, you see um, that he's hitting the whole canvas with white, flicking, flickering, flickering the whole surface of the picture with this white lead, you know? And uh, some of them are unfinished, and you look at them, and you think, what is this, snow, or why are these masks of light all over the place? And most likely, he was putting that the lapel light mic, dude. Ultimately, of, uh, uh, ultimately, of later glazing over it. So he's trying to put back into the picture light where he wants it to be. You will see this a lot. Like, I, something, a technique that I've used a million times in a lot of my paintings is sometimes I just added too much paint, or the piece is now too dark, 
And what I will do is I will let it completely dry and I will take some white gesso, some white paint, whatever, and I will literally just put white back onto the piece. I won't prime over the whole thing, but I will just brighten up the piece so I can go back and, and reestablish those darker values, you know, so that the light continues to shine through, but I'm still able to continue on the quest of achieving the desired image. And then letting it dry and then glazing over it. You know what I'm saying? So in modern painting, then you put the white where you want it to be. Uh, and so the white tends to be thicker in the end. And keep in mind, when he's talking about Flemish art, he's talking about shit from like the 13 or 1400s, I think. But when he's talking about modern painting, he's talking about probably the 1800s to now. Then, then the glaze of the darks. Um, I, but also, what the fuck do I know? I did not go to college for this. So when you begin a painting... My favorite part of loving art history and talking about this stuff on a podcast and in videos is that I secretly don't fucking have any idea what I'm talking about. When I begin paintings, I work on an amber ground. Um, almost all the time. I find amber to be a color that, uh, that, uh, that uh, can take lots of different movements to, to, to poor or neutral and then in the other way to, to warm. Um, the other thing that's odd about... Uh, painting is that it's a little bit like uh, sailing down a river, you know? It's not like you, you don't go straight down the river. You know, you tack. They call tacking. You you go to, one, you know, you t use the wind to take you to one side. You change the sail. You use the wind to take you to the other side. You use the sail. To, so it, to the other side, that's how you get up the river. You don't go straight up. And so um, in painting, also, there's this sense that you can start the painting and it'll look cool and then pour a glaze over the whole thing and then it'll all look warm. And then you rework it again when that's dry. And when you put the lights on, it'll look cool again. So keep in mind, to translate what he's saying, this metaphor of tacking is very helpful. Tacking when you're like kayaking a river or whatever the fuck. But just think of it like this. You push the painting one way. It looks nice. You say, okay, bye-bye to this version. And then you push it another way. And then you say, hmm, not yet. Now let's push it. Now let's change the sub. Let's do this. Hmm, okay, that looks pretty good. We're getting somewhere. And now let's push it a different direction. A lot of artists get frustrated, they get fed up, they give up on paintings because they try to take this direct linear path to their desired image. But what they don't know is that there are a lot of bumps and stops and detours along the way. And you need to trust the process, trust your technique, trust your ability, and trust your vision. Don't just barrel straight forward and then get upset when you don't reach your desired outcome. You got to, you gotta, you gotta have some trust. Not just in the technique, but trust in yourself. With some warmth now, and you move like that. So you don't like immediately head for hot, for warm, or, and you're better off starting the underpainting in a rather cool way. Um, you know, people stay away from white because they're afraid of making paintings look chalky. And some teachers even say, get rid of that white, because they don't really understand what makes a chalky painting. White doesn't make a painting chalky. You know, or even I'm going to change my white and get a white that's not as chalky as another white. It's not what does it. There's only one reason the paintings look chalky. And that's when you have coolness in the light and a similar coolness in the shadow. That's what makes a chalky painting. Nothing more than that. If you don't have a, diff a shift between the temperature of the light and the temperature of the shadow, you're going to get chalk. This is something that you see. Think about this in terms of photography and painting. Okay. A camera captures exactly what is in front of it you know with the exceptions of some very subtle and hard to notice camera distortion some differences from reality but one thing 
that it does perfectly accurate is it just sees the colors. It doesn't understand the colors. It doesn't need to know what it's photographing, but it sees them. Humans do not have that ability. I saw a funny meme recently where somebody said, damn, dude, my brain and my body knows exactly where all my organs are and what they do, but it won't tell me. I have to figure it out from a book. This is the same with your eyes. Your eyes understand exactly, like your eyes can look at something and, and perfectly read exactly what it is seeing. You look at a bookshelf, you see all the colors, you see the books, the lines, whatever. You know exactly what you're seeing. But there are subtleties in the colors and the shadows and the very, very subtle temperatures of each of those things that you do not understand. You do not understand what you were looking at. And what Vincent is advocating for here is, is, is intelligence and attention to detail in those subtleties. He's talking about a chalky painting. This I don't really know exactly what he means by a chalky painting because they didn't provide an example. But I'm assuming he just means a crappily colored painting that's haphazard and has, you know, he's talking about the temperatures being fucked up, which means the light in the paintings, temperature and, and color coordination in terms of the Y axis of fucking warm and, and cold is the same as the shadow. The shadows are the same temperature, not the same color, the same temperature as the light. This creates an unnatural imbalance in the color coordination of your picture. Think about what I said with the camera. When you take a picture of something with a normal, you know, modern digital camera, it just sees the colors as they are. It doesn't know what it's seeing. It just shows you what it saw. This is the same. <laughs> this is the same with your eyes. Your eyes sees. Your eyes see what is in front. What what is in front of them, but. It is up to you, your brain, and your intellect to accurately be able to translate that into created image. If you glaze the whole thing, or if you use warmth in the lights and warmth in the shadows, you're going to get what, what becomes muddy. Okay? So the, the shifts between, um, between uh, uh, the temperature and the light become crucially important in, in making a picture. The other thing that, I mean... Um, I don't mean, I, I need to talk about this stuff before I even begin to show you something, because I'm not going to show you, you know, a masterpiece in the making, uh, but I'm going to try to explain to you certain ways of, of, of merging or sort of bridging the gap between drawing and color, okay? Because that seems to be a huge problem all the time, everywhere. All right. Wait, what are they okay. saying? Because that seems to be merging, or, uh, but I'm going to try to explain to you certain ways of, of, of merging or sort of bridging the gap between drawing and color, okay? Because that seems to be a huge problem all the time, everywhere. All right. Okay. And the demo begins. <laughs> I love looking at these college students. You can tell that this is the 2010s. We still got slack beanies. We got this fucking haircut and this person rocking the hat. No, no shade. I love it, but it's funny how you can become dated without even fucking noticing. What year is this actually from? Yeah, nine years ago. I love how this has less than a hundred k views. Now, ladies and gentlemen, how long ago was nine years? What was nine years ago? What year was nine years ago? Twenty fourteen. That's when I graduated high school. Something very important about the distribution of pools and Literally, warm. what is wrong with me? I just had to ask my phone that. Over a form. Or the distribution of pools and warms over a, a, a light mass of the painting. All right, what okay? the fuck or, did he just say? 
now, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Something very important about the distribution of cools and warms over a form, or the distribution of cools and warms over a, a, a light mass of the painting, okay? You have to stagger the temperatures. What the hell's that? <laughs> I didn't ask for that. <laughs> okay. It, oh, no, that's cool. I, you're all right. They're okay. Just bear with us for a while. Fucking okay. idiot tech guys. <laughs> Staggering the temperature within the, uh, within the light mass is really important. The optics of illumination, which is really... Hold on. Within, what do they uh, say? Bear with us for a while. See, the the thing is with these is you can just listen to them as a podcast passively, but a guy like this, you might think, oh, this is just a bunch of academic intellectual mumbo jumbo, but that is a massive mistake that is absolutely not true. The you have you just have to be fucking smart as fuck and be thinking very critically to understand this fucking guy. It's not because he is some kind of way, it's because he's thinking on a very high level and it takes some time. It takes a lot of pausing and rewinding and rewatching to understand what this guy is trying to tell you. And there's a lot that he's saying that's definitely going over my head that I don't understand. But what this man is offering is very valuable. It's very hard to understand, and it takes time. Okay. The staggering of temperature within the uh, within the light mass is really important. The staggering of temperature within the light mass is very important. The optics of illumination, which is really codified in a sense by by Caravaggio. Jesus, this is so hard to understand. And it's, it becomes a very important Baroque conceit in painting. Uh, and uh, it, it, is some, it goes something like this. Now, it's not that people didn't understand this. I mean, obviously, Titian understood this very clearly. Leonardo understood it. People understood this. But it, 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 it reaches a kind of uh, almost uh, militant pitch in Caravaggio when he's sort of turning his back on mannerism and trying to, again, reassert the order of painting in uh, what I would call a Neoplatonic way. What's so funny about Caravaggio, too, is Caravaggio was an absolute dog. Like, the dude was, like, a bisexual, sword-carrying, uh, bar-fighting maniac. Like, the dude literally was on the run for murdering a guy. And, uh, yeah, anyway, Caravaggio was basically, like, a Renaissance Italian pirate. And when I say sword-carrying, that's an important detail, because it was very illegal to be having, to carry a sword on your hip at this time period in Italy. Because he, in Neoplatonism, I think I was speaking about. But what he's saying basically, oh fucking, oh, never mind. The vanishing point, uh, and the creation of perspective was by a group of Neoplatonists. The vanishing point, and when you look at a picture with a vanishing point, orthogonals and traversals, your eye is forced to look at the point of infinity. It's very hard to look at a perspectival grid and not see an illusion of space, right? Uh, so if your eye is being forced to this point of infinity, what would be the point of forcing your eye to 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 this this point? You know. The point is to uh, establish a corridor that exists between man and the infinite. Uh, and uh, it is a demonstration, therefore, of uh, what is a Neoplatonic idea about the soul's flight to the, to the ineffable, to the one. It, it becomes Christianized in the Renaissance. And it, but before that, it was Plotinus who actually invent, uh, developed it. Think about that, my friends. The passage of man's soul to the infinite. You know used as an uh, it, 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 the 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 eyes passage through the painting by linear perspective and color into the infinite as an allegory for the christian soul's passage to heaven the idea of neoplatonism that's where it comes from it's not plato it's neoplatonism it's plotinus in like i think 100 or 200 a.d that develops this notion 
It's actually a way of bringing the whole world uh, together. Um, that these divine eminences that flow like a fountain, the top of a fountain to earth, you know, uh, and then uh, arrive here contaminated, and we see these things in objects on earth in their contaminated form, but we recognize something in them that brings us back to the, to the, the source of it all, which is, in Plotinus' terms, the ineffable one, okay? See, stuff like this is going a bit over my head. Um, I mean, we could roll it back a little bit, but... ...develops this notion. It's actually a way of bringing the whole world uh, together. Um, that these divine eminences that flow like a fountain, the top of a fountain to earth, you know, uh, and then uh, arrive here contaminated, and we see these things in objects on earth in their contaminated form, but we recognize something in them that brings us back to the, to the, the source of it all, which is, in Plotinus' terms, the ineffable one. Okay, and the one has to be. A I think this is just a lot of allegory for why light is beautiful and important in painting. The one that can't be divided. There's no division within infinity, within a one. A one has no division. So the one then that they're referring to is truly infinity. You know, because in infinity, you know, there is no, uh, it, there, there, there is no difference. There's only one. And in infinity, um, um, there, there's the greatest para It's a mystery to us logically because there is no, uh, th there are paradoxes within it. You know, because if it's only one, then the maximum maximum is the same as the minimum minimum because you can't have a bigger and a smaller. It's all one. So the maximum, the biggest big is equal to the smallest small. You know, and these kinds of things troubled philosophers um, at the end of the Middle Ages, before the Renaissance, and it was always sort of present within Neoplatonic thought, um, which uh, uh, Augustine was a Neoplatonist, but you know, in, in the end, in the Middle Ages, Aristotelian thought took hold, and so it wasn't until early in the Renaissance, with the birth of humanism, that people began to reassess Aristotle's thinking and to start thinking more in terms of the Platonic, and Neoplatonism entered into Italy, you know, and, and spread throughout Europe. Neoplatonism is not just a, you know this Renaissance idea. It's it goes throughout Western culture for centuries afterwards. I think a problem here that's going over my head is that I don't know what Neoplatonism is, and I don't fucking care. When uh, I do care, but I don't know. When uh, Keats writes, "Ode to the Grecian Urn," uh, <laughs> "Ode to the Grecian," "Ode to the Grecian Urn," you know, he's speaking about truth and beauty <laughs> as being conjoined. You know, and uh, truth and beauty being conjoined is a Neoplatonic. That's a trash can. That the ineffable one is the pinnacle of both truth and beauty. That comes from Plato. Um, so perspective is, is a machine that forces your eye to this point of infinity. In mannerism, things sort of, uh, artists begin to say, I, I'm not merely imitating the world. I'm actually painting what's in my brain, my mind. Because we're now, we're intellectuals. We're not just simply craftsmen that paint, you know, things the way they look, you know? That's why mannerism figures become elongated and distorted and they just don't care. They know how to do it, but they don't want to do it that way. They want to prove this point. When Caravaggio comes around, so perspective then goes out the window and Neoplatonism takes a different, an inward sort of phase. Uh, 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 it goes to an inward phase, like the, the subjective of the artist. When Caravaggio emerges on the scene for a number of different reasons, and I won't go into involving the counter-reformation in the Catholic Church, he reasserts this relationship with uh, of the individual with infinity, okay? But he does it not by driving the eye deep into the picture to the vanishing point, but having the flash of the reflection off the surface of a form or off the, uh, from the center of a light mass back to the eye of the viewer, you know? A corridor of light comes into the scene and flashes back to you. So this is where Baroque begins, where the picture starts to emerge out of the frame rather than 
being behind the window as it was in early Renaissance, okay? Um, the placement of that, that reflection becomes very important. Now, we know that privilege is monocular vision. And, you know, if you've been on a lake with the moon there, with all your friends on the lake, you know, you don't see the reflection of the moon going to your friend. The reflection of the moon comes to you. And when you move over, it comes to you. You move over and it comes to you. Hmm. So reflection of that nature privileges uh, the monocular vision, just like linear perspective does. So you see it, it becomes an analog for linear perspective. And the vanishing point is an analog for the vanishing. The incidence of reflection is an analog for the vanishing point. And it reestablishes a corridor between man and the divine. Because light was believed to be traveling at an infinite rate of speed. So you're, dealing, you're partaking in infinity through the reflection of light. Even Descartes thought that, even as late as Descartes, he, he, said, he staked his entire philosophy on his belief that light was traveling. There are many people that are like, what the fuck does philosophy have to do with art? Why is this philosophy movement also associated with classical music and with painting or something? And when you listen to this man, you will understand exactly why philosophy and art are so intertwined. I'll admit it. I just don't fucking know what he's talking about fully. I, I, I mean, he's, he's saying that, you know, we're talking about, about, about the, the allegoric light passing from the, the infinite into you know, the, the, the ocular sphere of, of man's fucking monkey fucking brain and how that is, you know, this kind of, like, sacred process of us participating in, in something d divine and infinite and that's why linear perspective and light and temperature are so important. But despite all that, it is, it is properly difficult to understand. At an infinite rate of speed, of course, no, now we know it's not traveling at an infinite rate of speed, but it had a powerful effect on reestablishing this corridor, this Neoplatonic corridor between what's on Earth and what uh, is in infinity in the divine. Okay, so I say this because when people paint figures illuminated to show off the form, this is where it's coming from. It's not as if they didn't do that before in the Renaissance, but they insisted upon the organization of the light mass to demonstrate space figures in space, and also to reinforce this idea that form itself, that drawing of the form, was the highest achievement of the painter, because the painter then is partaking in, in, in sort of divinity, by making a form that is receiving the reflection, like a vanishing point. So, I mean, I kind of believe this in my own light as well, where, I mean, I'm not religious at all, I'm by, by all accounts atheistic in a way, you know, but I feel like there is, like, a lot of resonance for me that the idea that you know humans were once this like primitive lawless creature with with no intellect but somewhere along the way of billions of years of development our brains were just touched by some kind of infinite fucked up power that just gave us this gave us this something, you know, and I and I do feel like art and, and music and, and philosophy are us participating, you know, in that in that tradition. It's like an exercise and in a way of of displaying that almost stolen accidental divinity granted to human beings, you know, because without 
whatever that was that allowed us to build skyscrapers and fly in fucking planes. Without that, we would still be in the planes. Figures in space and linear from Quattrocento perspective, you know, are, are magical and the artist is godlike because he can make these things seem to be almost like pilgrims moving to infinity. And when you look at a, a linear perspective piece, you partake in the pilgrimage to infinity. Okay, along with these figures. The in pilgrimage the, to infinity. The, what Alberti would call the, uh, the historia. That's the, whatever the figures are doing in the pictures, the historia. Um, so, um, in the classical model, okay, uh, this is terrible. The slack beanies, the flannel with beard, I love it. The, see, this is an interesting era because this was a time where slack beanies overlapped with the nostril piercing. Nostril piercing is still here. It's still chilling. We're still doing that, but we're not doing slack beanies anymore. So, it's kind of this is the this is like you know, early 2010s overlapping with like the kind of beginnings of the uh you know, of pandemic era. I kind of love that. This is this crystal pandemic era. What the fuck am I saying? Wait, hold on. <laughs> I kind of love this. Just, this girl's just chilling, looks at the camera guy like, yo, yo, chill. It's nine in the morning, bro. Stop fucking filming me. What are you doing? And then he goes, oh, fuck, my bad. I'm going to paint, actually. What? What the hell is that? I'm gonna actually paint on the the, the the cover of the Bristol board uh, pad, which, I, which takes the charcoal. <laughs> okay, but I want to show you that in the classical model that was established by Caravaggio, there are four zones of light. Ah. Okay. I didn't like that sound. Highly <laughs> intellectual. Uh, and you may have seen this model over and over again. This is a classical model. There is a romantic model that uh, shows, can, I can draw that will demonstrate the deconstruction of, of form by Delacroix, you know? But Delacroix. in this model, um, you have four, four zones. This is Caravaggio, and, and it becomes the model for the Baroque. It's not just on a torso, remember. It's not just on a form within the space. Currently trying to figure out if this is a hole. This is a hole. Uh, it's, it's over the entire picture. So the martyrdom of St. Matthew by Caravaggio actually demonstrates this, and they all demonstrate it, Las Meninas demonstrates it, the night watch by Rembrandt. You have got these sort of, uh, these uh, areas of the light mass which is organized, and then you have the turning around it, and then you have the shadow beyond. So you've got a light mass, light mass, okay, which tends to be warmer, okay? Warmer, okay? So you've got the turning, which tends to be cooler, right? Then you've got the shadow, which we're gonna say tends to be neutral. I'll say neutral because if you have a warm light mass, a neutral shadow will look cool. If you have a cool light mass, the neutral shadow will look warm. Hmm. So you can get the shift without going from yellow to blue. Hmm. That's actually a very important tip because art is all about context where you put something that's gray on a black surface and it will look white. And what Vincent is saying here is that if you have a very bright, warm shadow pointed at your figure, the very the half shadow that it is creating 
on the face, perhaps the shadow of the nose, will be slightly cooler. But the shadow itself that is cast behind it, the dark shadow behind it, it will probably look cartoonish and wacky if you'd make that blue. But if you make it neutral in the middle of the two, by context, next to the warm light, it will look cold. It's a good tip. Coolness, okay? So, um, you can't, I'm sorry, you can't see it, but uh, then there's, there's this, which is the incidence of reflection. People call it the highlight, but I don't like the word highlight because it just looks like the light gets lighter, lighter. The incidence of reflection. Referring to the highlight as a point on the figure where the light is reflecting off of it instead of being absorbed. This is the white dot in the eye. The important thing about it is that it changes temperature from the light mass. It's cool. it's cool. Why would the... That's such a fucking interesting point because the highlight has to be in contrast to the light mass. And if the light mass is warm, the highlight, the incidence of reflection will mega pop omega if it's cold dog so you see the effect lit. you're getting when you're sort of, you start to stagger the temperatures it gives you it makes there's so many paintings you see that are supposedly done by people who are incredibly good at drawing the school of florence and you see this among students of peter Anagoni, and you see it in these ateliers and stuff sometimes you see it's beautifully drawn but it looks like it's plastic it's like they drew gumby or something you know it's like flesh does not reflect that way objects don't reflect don't don't look that way there's this constant pattern of warm and cool moving through it and it's a very confusing pattern if you don't sort of break it down into its simple components so when you this kind of model we don't see it all the time when i look around me right now i don't see this model i see everyone's sitting in half light right now so I'm seeing, you know, what Delacroix would bring into the discourse when he deconstructed this model that showed a form and he produced color. I can show you that in a minute. But the, the, uh, and people didn't walk around in the old days with a light strapped to them at 45 degrees. So every time you saw them, it was like, hello, madam. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes. And so every time you looked at them, you saw this model, you know, nice, clearly played out. And yet portraits were always done this way. You know, paintings were done this way. And why were they done this way? Obviously, they walked around and they saw what I'm seeing. But they didn't paint that. Is it because they didn't have photography? No, it's not because of that. Because this model privileges drawing. It privileges form. It privileges tonality, okay? Which from the, pers the birth of perspective became the intellectual calling card of the artist. It gave the artist, it was, a, it was the, the further demonstration of the worthiness of the artist as linear perspective was. You have to understand that artists were like, were like perhaps, actually they are like we, we are now. They were like, you know, nothings. Nothing's in society, you know, until you become rich and famous. Then you're something. You know, are you a successful artist? Well, what do you mean? I, I did some successful paintings. He said, no, are you making money at it? Well, no. Oh, forget about it. And then when I talk to the person who's making money with the successful artist, it's bullshit. It's total bullshit. But the rise of the artist... <laughs> I agree with everything he said, but that was pretty funny hearing it from him. <laughs> from the working sort of the work, working person, the craftsperson who was anonymous during the Middle Ages and these sort of celebrity uh. figures. They weren't just celebrities. They were also striving to be to enter into the seven little arts to be accepted as intellectuals. So when they invented perspective, this was the way they could show everyone. Not only are we philosophers, we're also mathematicians and we're also sort of creating an aid to religion, as Alberti said. You know, so why not let us into the liberal arts? Think about this. People do not really respect... Photoshop artists and digital artists 
digital media creators as being you know a part of this like infinite lineage of art making they see them as merely craftsmen people designing flyers people making edits people making banner advertisements for fucking giant companies <sighs> and what vincent is saying is that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years where oil painters and artists and sculptors were seen with the exact same mundanity, you know? But linear perspectives, invention, or perhaps discovery, welcomed artists into the divine, into the infinite, into the intellectual, into becoming a liberal art. You know what liberal arts are, right? The liberal arts are what in the, in the universities in the past there were like seven liberal arts and it was astronomy rhetoric grammar i think uh, uh mathematics um, um philosophy there were th th these were the liberal arts that anyone who went to school to study to the and the reason that i brought up photoshop and digital media as well isn't because i think that's just a bunch of dickheads making edits on their laptops i think that photoshop and digital art is so much more than that is and is just a as well a part of this tradition of thinking and art as well as oil painting i just meant to bring it up to highlight you know it's it's not respected as an art really it's just seen as a utility i don't think that's right but it is the truth universities in, in uh, pisa or in bologna or in uh in france uh, would study the liberal arts and they would become they would become masters of the liberal arts right doctors of the liberal arts but painters were always excluded from that you know music was one of the liberal arts but painting wasn't poets were not ex allowed into the liberal arts it comes from an old stigma from painting so when artists invented perspective this is their their moment now let us in so a lot of the artists actually tried to get into the liberal arts, tried to petition to be Piero della Francesca, Mantegna, Leonardo himself you know they've even as late as the father-in-law of, of Velasquez tried to to you know, get into the liberal arts, and the, the justification for their applications to the liberal arts was always drawing, because, but never color, because drawing was stable, determinate, predictable, measurable. And this is still the exact same way. You see that from architects and from utility artists right now, where the the drawing and rendering is prized far above aesthetic or intellectual appeal. Therefore, it had a kind of rational component that would appeal to the rational, logical people of the liberal arts, you know? They never would say, well, color, because we can mix amazing colors, we, we should be admitted because color was considered ephemeral, not important, which we know is ridiculous now. We know it's ridiculous now. In fact, it's actually ridiculous that we're even in the liberal arts at all. You're probably better off here than being <laughs> at a university where you'll be ghettoized again. Um, ghettoized. So when I show you the model that I'm going to start to demonstrate for you is uh, based on a classical model. And it's going to um, uh, attempt to show you how uh, it can be possible to make, uh, to deal with warm and cool without overmixing colors that don't play well together and turn into muddiness or chalkiness. Okay, that's a big problem in painting. Um, so I'm gonna show you at a certain point how you can make a blue with nothing but warm colors, you know, which you probably know how to do to a certain extent, but I'm gonna show you how simple that is and how it reinforces the idea that continuous skin from light mass to turning uh, to shadow eventually can, can be done without trying to sort of, in the beginning of your painting, that, that is, start to mix these planes of color, okay? You can start in this way. I'm gonna work on a rougher piece of paper because um, 
the charcoal's not taking to this. But then I can work on the Bristol board to show you a different way of approaching this. Um, okay, I need a chair. What's that? Do you have Strathmore? Thick, thicker Strathmore? That's right, don't worry about it. I'll use this. This is, this will be fine. Okay. Um, and our model. We'll set up, set up a, a simple pose. This is not going to be a Joe Pro. Joe Pro. Could you ever see, um, Joe Pro is such a boomer ass thing to say because like this is something you'll hear from like so many old professors where it's a word for egotistical overachiever. I, the movie, but have you ever seen the cartoon that it's based on? The comic? It, they're like a five page comic that is hilarious, far better than the movie. And it's all the movie was actually based on this little thing, Art Confidential. And uh, you know, he goes through the kinds of characters you meet in art school, and then one of the characters is Joe Pro. Because I'm sorry, I'm late for class. I was just finishing an assignment for blah, blah, blah. There's a guy who comes to class, I'll let everybody know he's like already working in the field. You know? Or the guy who blah, blah, blah says, when I was talking to so-and-so at the Whitney, he said blah, blah, blah. You say it in front of some other person until they go, oh, you know? Okay. Okay, thank you. Um, that's fine for now. I mean, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to try to paint from the front. Okay. Um, and actually, uh, a little bit to the light. Okay. Uh, a little less to the light. First thing I'm going to ask myself is what is the temperature of the light? Okay, crucially important. Not that I'm going to immediately start painting the temperature of that light, but I just want to know, get an idea where the temperature of the light's going. And then I want to say, then what is the temperature of shadow? Would you take um, this arm, put it, put it more? No, no, I'm sorry, just, just like that. And take the other arm and put it like that. The light is warm. The turnings have a coolness to them. We can actually accentuate the the. Um, the difference between these things by flashing something into the shadow mass. Do you see what happens to the shadows? You know, if I use the yellow of the shadows, what Delacroix said is that if you make the whole subject of the painting the shadow mass and the half light, then that's where all the reflected light happens, reflected color happens. You see? So that's why he deconstructed the model of form. Moreover, form demonstrated this way, for example, in the school of David, you know, was an authority, was totalitarian. It dominates the, it dominates the thing you're painting. It doesn't allow for the reflection of, of uh, color, you see? So if you want to put it in political terms, you could say that the light falling upon the form colonizes the form. It sort of overtakes the form, and the form then can do nothing but reflect the brilliance of the light, or partake of the brilliance of the light. And every reflective propensity that would exist in this half-light situation that I'm seeing when I'm looking at you is, is forced, crowded to a ghetto of shadow. See what I'm saying? Do you understand that? So if you think of it anthropomorphically, or you think of it politically, or you think of it in sort of social terms, then you kind of understand how artists begin to allegorize the whole system. Like, light then becomes an allegory of, of, of uh, political dominance. Shadows become actually a place of, of, uh, of, uh, uh, of rebellion, of uh, insurgency, you know? And among the shadows, of course, you've got a multiplicity. It's kind of a disturbing metaphor, but a powerful one at that. A multiplicity of, of groups, of different political groups, vying for attention within the shadow mass. And those are the different things that, that, you know, that reflect in the shadow mask, you know? You might have, like, this going on up there, and then you might have this going on down there. You see? So you've got this sort of, like, these, these 
warring factions within the shadow mass that are uh, kept in control by the glory of Rome, you know? You could have Pal people in Palestine or people in other parts of the Roman Empire that sort of the Romans allow to have their customs and things like that, but they have to give, pay homage always to Caesar, right? Caesar is the light mass. Okay, so when you think of it in these terms, it becomes... Actually it's kind of funny. I remember identifying with this metaphor at a previous watch many years ago where I kind of adopted that idea that the light is this, like, mega power and the shadow is this dark thing being pushed into the cracks and crevices, you know, but I started to kind of feel like it was a bit of the opposite where the light casting shape on the form is the powerful thing that is pushing the evil back in, you know? I don't fuck, I have no idea what the fuck I'm talking Actually, about. First of all, easier to remember. And secondly, you understand that these things become... It's really funny because I watched this in 2018 the last time and I remember it absolutely melting my fucking brain, so it's kind of interesting to uh, re-watch with fresh eyes, a new brain. Shoes for painters. These things are not just replications of what people see. These are kind of intellectual models that are at war with each other you know they become allegorized they turn into allegories the method is allegorized and it goes all the way through you know if Delacroix's if Delacroix's half-light is uh is a gray day as I said I don't know if I said it in the lecture last night but you know the picture should be structured as started as upon a gray day meaning a half-light and then you stick a light into it you have lights and shadows but the guts and glory of the picture should be according to Delacroix the half-light you see that in impressionism you never see a form like this uh a form like this painted by an impressionist they would never set something up like this they would set something up so it privileged the color and reflection of color and in order to do that you have to look carefully into shadows and half lights and privilege those over the form and that's one of the reasons why impressionism flattens so the canvas flattens okay and eventually in modernist painting the flatness of the canvas becomes very important the pure interaction of color right um It is kind of interesting to note that we, you know, were born into a world that just does not prioritize perspective drawing. Like, we are currently in an art world that really, truly does not care about flatness, about Western intellectual technique or color theory. You know, we live in a world or operating in an art world that is prioritizing, you know, the concept far 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 over the technique the color the form whatever it's all about the the writing really we're all just a bunch of artist statement writing performance conceptual installation dickheads so when we look at the model right now <clears throat> it's very easy to see everywhere the light is striking her as being the same it's very easy to see it as as the same light is striking the body and everywhere it's striking it's almost the same color but that's not our job you know you can get everybody off the street and tell them to draw the model and they'll make an outline and then they'll take a flesh color whatever flesh we're talking about and paint it the whole thing that color right and you look at it it's just sort of this outline with flesh color or some flesh color through it you, you've seen it you know, people, little kids do it all the time but our job is not to look at that and our job is to differentiate, especially in the light mass. You have to look carefully into it to find these differences that that model showed you, okay? So you have a light mass, you have a turning and you have a shadow. 
when I do that, you see the, the turning takes on a grayness, but the shadow has a different character to it. I'm sorry. Do you see how the turnings are gray? The shadows are of a different thing. They could be, I say neutral because they could be this or they could be this, depending on what's next to them. So if you make them neutral, you'll be, you'll be better off in terms of change, flipping, the, changing the color, depending on whatever's next to them. Okay? When you're inventing a, a figures in a space, for example. Um, this is so hard to work through because this is so dense and it's such technical information that it just really doesn't translate into my brain accurately its present time. So we have the light mass, we have the turn of the shadow. Now let's find the incidence of reflection, which is very hard to see at times, but we know how it has to be there. Let's hop ahead Look to the uh, demo here. Look at that. Oh. Begin different ways. One way to shellac, right? Um... This is an important detail he's actually about to mention. Hold on. What's going on here? Okay. All right. Now, um, when I paint, uh, do studies, I usually use shellac on paper. Um, and the shellac that I use is generally an amber shellac. Shellac you can buy it in a hardware store, and it's either you can get a clear and an amber shellac. All right. Um, and I begin different ways. One way I'm Honestly, guys, I can't hide it anymore. I'm bored as fuck with this lecture. Maybe I will do a part two soon, but for now. Let's just, uh, let's call it quits here. We learned some interesting things about light, about painting. We had some thoughts about art. We learned how to make videos better. Uh, I'm sorry if this felt lazy, if this felt stupid, but I'm trying to uh, get better at this. Next time I will choose content that is much less boring to, uh, to fuck around with. By the way, did you know that this artist did the um, uh, art that was used in reference to Kanye West's very controversial music video, the one where he had a bunch of naked wax figures of celebrities lying in a giant bed. Yeah, that was this guy, Vincent Desiderio. How funny is that? Anywho, talk to you guys later. Bye. Boston Art Podcast is an independent DIY production by Brian Huntress and Theodora Earthworms. The information contained in this episode represents the views and opinions of the original creators or our guests, and does not represent any institution, organization, or business. Find us on Instagram at Boston Art Podcast, and tune in for a new episode every Friday. Thank you for listening.